for a good reason, we talk a lot about empathy these days. Sometimes, becoming truly empathetic can be a challenge. You really have to dig deep to get there. Wouldn't it be a whole lot easier if you could just, like, switch bodies with the person you're seeking empathy for? This is the general premise of Freaky Friday, which was, in fact, a book before it was adapted, most recently into a 2003 movie starring Lindsay Lohan and Jamie Lee Curtis. The book was written by Mary Rogers and published in 1972. In it, we get into the brain of 13-year-old Annabelle, who, for reasons we never quite discover, wakes up in her mother's body one morning and spends the day getting some first-hand experience in adulting. We learn that Annabelle and her mother Ellen are frequently at odds, often because Annabelle is looking for the kind of freedom she is convinced her mother has, simply because she is a grown-up. Annabelle's stubborn, willful personality makes her an interesting character, but she also has a softer side. We discover that she deals with some serious self-esteem issues, and that she's pretty sick of people, her teachers, her family members, a boy she's crushing on named Boris, making assumptions about her just because she's a little messy and has strong opinions. On episode 111, Freaky Friday serves as an awesome jumping off point for conversations about the fundamental, universal misunderstandings that exist between kids and adults. My guests and I compare the book to its movie adaptations. Spoiler alert, the book might come up short on that whole empathy thing. We take a look at some of the more problematic elements of Freaky Friday the book, namely a racist housekeeper and a misogynist dad. Today's guest comes into this conversation with an especially interesting perspective because she's the mom of a teenager. So we chat about whether or not she would want to experience a Freaky Friday. And if you listen until the end, you'll learn more about how this reading experience has inspired her writing. Suzanne Park is a former stand-up comedian, earned an MBA degree and worked in marketing, and is now best known as the author of The Perfect Escape and Loathe at First Sight. Follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Suzanne Park. Suzanne, I so appreciate you joining me for this episode. I appreciate all the listeners who follow and chat with me on social media as well. Find the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at SSRPod and on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. If you're looking for a more interactive SSR experience on Facebook, search for the smaller, chattier fan group there which is called the SSR Podcast Community. Every week I share discussion questions, several weeks worth of previews of upcoming episodes so you can read along, and more fun resources. I'd love to see you over there. I would also love to see you leaving five-star ratings and reviews of the show on iTunes. You probably get annoyed hearing your favorite podcasters make this request week after week after week, but we only do it because it really does help our shows grow. More ratings and reviews means that a podcast ranks higher in Apple's algorithm, which makes it easier for people to find. Plus, I have a lot of fun reading what you have to say about SSR. If you have already left a rating or a review, or if social media is more your thing, you can also help people find the podcast by sharing this episode to your favorite social platform. Snap a screenshot of this episode and share it to your Instagram story, noting what you think about it and tagging SSRPod so I can see. You can also tweet about the show or post about it on Facebook. And while I personally have not made the move to get TikTok, I am sure there is a creative way for you to share the pods you're loving there too. No matter where you decide to share them, these social posts are hugely impactful as I continue to grow the podcast and the SSR community. So thank you. Another big thank you goes out to all of the Patreon sponsors tuning in to episode 111. For those who don't know, Patreon is a platform that gives you the opportunity to support your favorite independent creators, including podcasters like me, with a few dollars every month in exchange for exclusive rewards. For as little as a dollar per month, you can play an active role in this show. At every tier, there are different rewards up for grabs. Everything from SSR swag and input on book selection to newsletters and bonus episodes. I have to say, it's pretty cool. Visit www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page for details and next steps. 
And now allow me to refresh your memory about how awesome Libra FM is. Libra FM is a platform that allows you to support independent bookstores with the purchase of the same audiobooks that you can get from bigger companies. I'm not going to name names, but you know who I'm talking about. The audiobooks are the same price too. Go to Libra FM, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. I am so grateful to the wonderful team at Libra FM for continuing to partner with SSR. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Suzanne. Welcome to SSR. Hi, how are you doing? I'm great. It's Friday as we record, and appropriately, we are talking about Mary Rogers' 1972 book, Freaky Friday. Yes, I'm very excited to talk about this book. So tell me a little bit about why you picked this book, what your experience with this book, or, you know, I know with this book, especially like the movie, I think has sort of um, eclipsed the book. And I actually found an interesting essay about that, that I might share with you later about how the book is what's kind of gotten lost in like the Freaky Friday canon, because there's been four adaptations at this point, which is kind of crazy. But I'm curious what your familiarity was with the book or the movie, and maybe why you wanted to choose this one to talk about today. I hadn't read it when I was younger. So it was always one book that I'd heard about. And then I'd seen the movie, the 2002 or 2003 Lindsay Lohan version. Yeah, (laughs) it's a classic. That's how I framed it up in my mind of what Freaky Friday was all about. And then I always like to see how movies are adapted from the original novel. So I thought this would be interesting to, to read. Uh, The other reason is that my daughter is uh, middle school age, so I was kind of interested to see how these types of books, uh, especially ones that were written a long time ago, would um, hold up over time. And I guess we'll talk about that. (laughs) Yes, we definitely will. Well, I love that you come to this conversation with the perspective of having a middle schooler. Annabelle, our main character, is 13. So I'd imagine she's probably like 7th or 8th grade, right right in that zone. So my experience with this book, like I'm not really sure when my Freaky Friday experience started. I feel like the phrase Freaky Friday and in some ways this whole book is kind of just like, worked its way into our collective consciousness. Like you don't even have to have read the book or even like seen a full adaptation in order to know what like a Freaky Friday is. Like I just feel like growing up, I just knew what happened in this book. Like I knew that Freaky Friday was a story where there's a mother-daughter body swap. I was trying to think about if I had seen the movie or read the book first. And I think I maybe read the book first. I sort of have this vague memory of reading it while I was visiting my grandmother in the summer when I was in elementary school. Listeners will know because I've told the story before, but 
every year when I would go spend a week at her house, she was a big reader. And so she would take me to Barnes and Noble like the first day I got there. And she would let me pick like basically whatever I wanted. And the two of us would just sit by the pool for the whole week and read. And it was like the dream. And she especially liked when I picked up classics. And so at the time in the 90s, this was a book that she remembered from when my mom read it. So she was like really pumped to buy it for me. And so I think that maybe was when I read it, probably in the late 90s. And then, yes, I went on and I saw the 2003 adaptation with Jamie Lee Curtis and Lindsay Lohan. I was a big Lindsay Lohan fan at that time, just coming off The Parent Trap. And the other one was Confessions of a Teenage Drama Queen, which I actually think is sort of like similar to Freaky Friday in some ways. Like the character that Lindsay Lohan plays is really similar. I'm not sure if you saw that one. No, I didn't see that one. That's another fun one. Yeah, you should watch it with your daughter. Yeah, I was about to say I can watch it with her. But I, but I remember the movie more clearly. The book is so different, and it's it's a pretty short story. I think the book feels a little bit more like sweeping in some ways. It's like a bigger world. There's more characters. There's more going on. Whereas the book is just like it's very easy to read. I think even when I was a kid, I probably thought that it was easy to read. There's not a lot of perspectives. There's it's it's a pretty narrow kind of world that we're getting. So that was a long way to explain that. Like I read the book, I watched the movie. But I have not really given it much thought in a long time, so I was very excited to get back into it. I would love to share a couple of things I learned about the author because she's actually really interesting. Do you know anything about Mary Rogers? I was reading a little bit about her because when I we picked the book, again, I remember it being an older book, but because it had been recovered in 2009 and I guess updated, although I don't know how it was updated, I, I knew it was older and I was surprised to see it was from 1972. So that was before I was born and uh, you. And at, at that point, I did a little bit of research on the author just to see you know what other work she had worked on and, and what her history was. But I'm sure you have the rundown. But yeah, she has very... Um, different background than most authors do. Yeah, so her dad was Richard Rogers of Rogers and Hammerstein, Hammerstein, I don't know how how listeners have heard it, of Rogers and Hammerstein fame. I grew up on Sound of Music in Oklahoma and State Fair, and so those musicals are very close to my heart, and I, I had no idea that she was his daughter, so that was a fun fact to begin with. But in addition to writing this book and then two sequels in addition to it, she wrote music on the album Free to Be You and Me, which my mom played for me when I was a kid. She wrote the lyrics to the Captain Kangaroo theme song, she wrote the music for the Once Upon a Mattress musical. She wrote for Bernstein's Young People's Concert Series. Like, she did all these really interesting, like, musical kinds of things, which makes sense given her family background. And then she met her editor, Ursula Nordstrom, through Stephen Sondheim, because, you know, like, of course, <laughs> these are the people that you know. Um, must be great. And so her editor when they met at that point had edited Stuart Little, Where the Wild Things Are, Harriet the Spy, and The Giving Tree. And they met and the editor is basically like, I want you to just like have fun with writing. And that's what Mary Rogers did. Her first book was called The Rotten Book. And it was based on like every bad thing that she did when she was a little girl. And then she went on to write Freaky Friday. She passed away in 2014. So there's a really lovely tribute to her in The New Yorker that I'll include in the show notes if people want to read sort of the full reflection on her life. But I was I was sort of fascinated by her, and I feel like she doesn't quite get enough credit as this, like, very interesting figure in Kidlet. Right, and she has such a unique background that's so grandiose, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it was almost like, how, how did you even end up writing books? Because you had such a huge career doing all these other things. And she released a lot of books, too, too. So yeah. that was also amazing about her. Yeah, and it also gives context to the fact that she wrote about a New York City family because 
that was something I wasn't expecting because the adaptations, um, I think in, I've, I remember seeing the 1976 adaptation with Jodie Foster as well, but in that movie and then also in the Lindsay Lohan adaptation, they live in the suburbs. And so it was like surprising to me when I started reading the book that this family is like very New York. They're very embedded in Manhattan culture. So I, it makes sense to me that the author like drew on her own experience growing up in New York when she wrote this. Um, I believe the man she went on to marry also was in like the theater, musical theater business. She had five children. Uh, she just seems like a really interesting person. So I do kind of want to read more about her and I'll, I'll be sure to include that link for those who are also curious. What was your first impression? So this book has a really great opening line. Like, I'm not going to say I love the whole thing, but the opening is really great and I'll share it. The book starts like this. You are not going to believe me. Nobody in their right minds could possibly believe me, but it's true. It really is. When I woke up this morning, I found I turned into my mother. (laughs) What did you think about that way to kick it off? So again, now I'm reading this in the context of my daughter. So I had started reading the book and then flipped over just to see the beginning of the movie with my daughter. And she, her thing, her first comment was, oh, I would never want to swap bodies with you. <laughs> You're like rude. <laughs> I was like, um, I did not expect that comment. And what do you mean by that? But I think she just sees my daily life and sees how I usually have a lot going on. Um, I would like to think it's that. Yeah. But you know, reading about it and that having such a, like a really strong first few sentences, I just, her whole beginning really just grabs the reader. So I really, really liked it. And then she calls back to that first line too at the end. Yeah. I did like the way that she brought that full circle. Mm -hmm. So the premise here is that Annabelle and her mom, Ellen, had a huge fight the night before. Annabelle says, You see, I had reason to believe that she was responsible for this whole happening because last night we had a sort of an argument about something and I told her one or two things that had been on my mind lately. So they had this whole fight because Annabelle wants more freedom, which I think is probably a very common argument. Um, Mm -hmm. I was not one who argued much with my mom, so a lot of times in these conversations I'm like, I'm sure this happens all the time, but can't quite personally relate. But I think especially in the context of Annabelle's life in New York, she talks about wanting to be allowed to like cross the street by herself and go places with her friends by herself and go to the park by herself, and her mom is just very cautious. And um, they have this whole argument where Annabelle is basically like, well, you don't have to wait for people to tell you what to do. And her mom says, Annabelle, when you're grown up, people don't tell you what to do. You have to tell yourself, which is sometimes much more difficult. And Mm -hmm. as an adult now, I'm like, retweet. Like, yes, (laughs) I agree. But as a kid... I totally can, like, that's such a common thing. And I do think that this book and this argument that they had the night before we actually, like, fall into this story hits on something, like, really fundamental about the experience of being a kid, which is just this feeling of, like, why don't adults understand what it's like to be me? Like, why don't adults let me make my own decisions? Do you remember having those feelings? Like, do you remember having wanted to, like, be a grown-up when you were a kid? I really do remember thinking, I cannot wait till I um, have, you know, I'm independent was was the way I was seeing it. And and I, I see her struggles too, where, uh, but at the same time, if you, you know, fast forward to today's life in 2020, the things that her mom didn't want her to do, like walk home through the park in New York City by herself, 
those are still things that people don't want their kids to do right now. Yeah. So it's um, <laughs> so in that way, it was interesting to see parenting back then and now her seeing, being seen as super strict and still now that's actually almost a common thing. So um, I, I would I would love to know, you know, back then when she was writing this, like what her own relationship with as a teenager uh, with her own family was, um, whether it was she felt that it was super strict then or it, it or it was just a time period where relative to her other peers, was she feeling oppressed in some ways? Hmm. That's true. I hadn't thought about it like that. And I guess we've talked about this a bit on the podcast where there is all this conversation about how now there's this like helicopter parenting trend and how it wasn't like that in the 60s, 70s. Kids were given more freedom to like go out and just come home when it got dark. But I wonder what that looked like in the city, because a lot of the times when we have those conversations, it's about stories that took place in the suburbs. So that's a good point. Like, I wonder, relative to other New York moms in the 70s, like, I wonder if Ellen is strict or if she's sort of similar in terms of her rules and her cautions. Yeah, especially because it's placed in New York City. Yeah. You know, what? I remember I went to school in New York in, in college, and back then it's so different than it is now in terms of crime and, and violence and stuff. So I, I do wonder if even back in the 70s, it was much different time as well. So I don't know. Um, the funny thing I thought was when the things she thought adults did was just <laughs> outlandish, like you can tell yourself to go out to lunch with your friends, watch TV all day long, eat marshmallows for breakfast, and you know, go to the yeah. movies at night. Like all rattling off all these things that you know, just <laughs> it's like adults don't do that. <laughs> yeah, just your understanding of what it means to be responsible for yourself is like so different than what you realize that actually means when you become an adult. It's not just being like, okay, like now I would like to be responsible for like having fun in this way and now I would like to be responsible for having fun in that way like but but I, I think to young kids especially like when you're at school all day you don't see what your parents spend their time doing and that's definitely one of Mary Rogers's primary points in this book yes and she does respond by saying you know I do the laundry and the shopping and cook food for you guys. And, you know, I'm responsible for both you and your, your brother. And she just kind of glosses over that. And <laughs> well, yeah. I want to be responsible for myself, you know, and it's, it's funny because she's actually trying to explain what adulting is back then. And she just wasn't listening. <laughs> no, she was not listening. She knew what she wanted and it was to be free. And I think Annabelle's character, she's very headstrong. She really wants to be independent. Like this isn't just your average kid who like wants to have no rules. Her personality type is like, this is who she is. She wants to do her own thing. She's very driven. I think we'll probably talk a little bit later about the conversation that she has with her teachers at school when she goes into this like parent-teacher meeting as her mom. But it's kind of clear to me that like she's in these structures that are trying to like hide her best qualities and the things that maybe now we would celebrate in a young girl. And I think like she's fighting for that freedom to show those things off. But yeah, I mean, there's a whole argument that that Ellen and Annabelle have the night before we meet them, I think is like very fundamental. And I think it's very relatable for a lot of kids, a lot of families. And it's universal no matter what year you're living in. The one thing that struck me is that Annabelle is like very calm about the whole thing. She's like, oh, I appear to be in my mother's body. Hmm, like my dad is is in the bed with me like this is interesting but she stays like so calm she does and she's like okay I'm gonna try to do this adult thing by uh you know making breakfast which is just 
fried eggs and instant coffee, right? That's yeah. That's we're going to get. Uh, she is calm. Uh, very different from the movie uh, with Lindsay Lohan. Yeah. Uh, where they are not calm and, in fact, freaking out. Yes. And, and I think it's worth noting, like, right now, is that we don't get anything from her mom's perspective yeah. in this whole book, which is another huge difference between the book and all of the movie adaptations. All of the movie adaptations give you the mom's point of view as well. So you get these scenes of Annabelle or the Annabelle equivalent in the movie living in her mom's body. And then you also get the scenes of the mom living in Annabelle's body. In the book, it's it's all about Annabelle's perspective. So we have no idea where her mom is, what happened to her, what her mom's reaction has been. And we also don't know like the mechanism that caused all of this to happen. In the two adaptations that I've seen, um, you kind of like understand how this all happened. And it's, it's all about like an external source. So in the 2003 adaptation, I believe they have their fight at a Chinese restaurant. And there's an older woman who works at the restaurant who like wants to to help them understand each other better. So she gives them this magic fortune cookie. And I think that it's a whole other conversation about like the cultural implications of that. And uh, I don't think that that would necessarily be something that would be a choice in a 2020 adaptation, but we don't get any scene like that in this book. We're, we're meant to believe that basically like Annabelle's mom wanted them to switch bodies. And so they just did. Yes. And it, you know, and it is, super strange how it could even happen and then she doesn't address it and then at the end of the book it's like it's my secret you know and uh that's what the mom says so it's <laughs> yeah it seems like oh i wish i kind of knew but i i'll forgive it to just you know because you're very at the very end yeah so you might as well finish the book i'm definitely the kind of reader who like I-, I wanted to know the whole time and i think i probably was like that as a kid too i found this one essay on the av club it's called an early ya novel gets lost in the freaky friday canon i'll be sure to include this in the show notes as well but they were talking about this and how the lack of like information about how all this happened is one of the key differences between the book and all of the movies and they say in the book it's clear that ellen is the one doing the switching it's an unspoken nod to the greatness and tenacity of mothers that they have hidden powers that can accomplish amazing things like switching bodies <laughs> like that's all we know that's the, the only thing we know is that like moms can do a lot of things and so like sure like i could totally switch myself into your body and, and again that would be what would be my daughter's worst nightmare <laughs> <laughs> would you want to switch places with your with your daughter at this point you know, I, I do see, because now that she's here uh, full-time with the pandemic, I do see what her daily life is like. She is at this age where there's a lot of change, both at school, socially, um, and, you know, because she's here, I get to see it all happen on Zoom and, you know, in various distanced playdates. But I, I think overall, it does. I starting to remember how it was like back then. So I probably would prefer to stay in my current body. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Middle school is really hard. <laughs> it is. It is. And she's sort of just starting that. You know, she's at that age where she's figuring it out, and you have to give them room. So she's navigating a lot of this on her own, and then you know, I, I chime in as needed. But um, it it it's hard, and it's. It's always been hard, and I feel like, especially with the pandemic, it's harder. So, yeah. So I prefer to stay put. 
<laughs> I do think like you can't really uh, you can't replicate the sense of self that comes with with passing middle school and becoming an adult. And I don't know that I would trade that sense of self in for anything, but it would be interesting to like experience some of those things that were hard about middle school very temporarily, like with that sense of self that I've gained and like just kind of see if it would feel any different. Yes. Yes. And then this is the age where you start untethering the little ones and, you know, letting them figure stuff out on their own because they have to as they get older. And it's hard to know as a parent, you know, when you're stepping over your boundaries or not. So uh, watching her kind of figure this out has been interesting to me because I'm learning as a parent, you know, where, where it's okay to just let her figure things out. And she has some wins and some, you know, losses, uh, but it's, it's been a good experience too, as a parent to see her grow and become her own person. Hmm. Like I'm realizing what she's really enjoying in life now, uh, without me telling her like, here's some lessons, here's, you know, here's a curriculum, you know, she's navigating that on her own now. And so she's really interested in animation, which is not Hmm. something I would have just picked for her or said, why don't you take animation lessons or here's uh, some animation books, you know, she just figured that out on her own. And I think she's just going to keep doing that. And I, it's, it's really wonderful to see. That's so cool. She sounds like a very cool kid, although she probably (laughs) wouldn't want to be called a kid on a podcast. So she sounds like a very cool young woman. (laughs) Young woman. Yes. I think the other thing that we miss in the book that is really interesting and helpful. And I think productive for like all parties who might be watching the movie in the movies is that is that we see to your point about like the fact that middle school isn't necessarily easy I think what's lost in the book because we're not getting any of the mom's perspective is like there's no appreciation for the fact that like Annabelle's life might be hard like we don't really know what Annabelle's life is like because we're only hearing a few stories about things from her and they're all kind of like embarrassing moments or things that are hard we get a couple of run-ins with her friends but there's we don't have a lot of context for her life and I think what's so special about the movie and why the movie has meant so much to a lot of people is that it really champions empathy within a family because not only is Annabelle or I don't remember what her name is in the movie but not only is the Annabelle character gaining an appreciation for everything that her mom does and how hard it is to be an adult and how it's not just like being free and like doing what you want to do all the time but the mom also is reminded of the fact that like being a teenager isn't that easy and there are things that are like really stressful and difficult and there are things that you don't always want to bring to your parents like I think that that sort of reciprocity makes a huge difference to the way that we as viewers or readers um, experience the story and so I was I was definitely missing that in reading the book because instead it felt very much like this one-sided thing of like kids will never appreciate parents and so this book shows that like parenting is hard but like and period stop done whereas I think that other piece of it is really a special part of the way that the book has been adapted yeah and then you only see her I guess her impact on other people's lives through an adult lens through her teachers or through the the house is it a house cleaner keeper? Yeah, the housekeeper. Ugh. So you see that, you know, through a different, uh, you know, from their perspective, an adult perspective, and you don't, uh, you know, get to see really what it's like to be a kid except through ape face. <laughs> right, or <laughs> brother. I did like to see his his perspective and him having conversations with the fake mom who was Annabelle 
so you really get to see sort of a different side of her. And that was nice to see. And it's, you know, it has that nice touch where I think if you have a younger sibling, which I do, and you're the older one, you, you do feel like, oh, what a pest, you know, sometimes yeah. where, you know, there's like them following you around or, you know, them copying you. But I think all of that is um, just this unspoken admiration sometimes where uh, you don't really see it. But it was nice for him to articulate that in the book. Yeah, because Annabelle just has like no patience for him whatsoever. Um, and zero. yeah, zero. And she kind of assumes that he feels the same way because they just have this like, they have this challenging relationship as siblings do. But when he thinks that he's talking to his mom, he's like, oh, no, like, I I love Annabelle. Like, anybody who hates Annabelle, like, I hate them, too. And he talks about how she's cool and his friends think she's cool. And even some of the kids in her grade think she's cool. And these aren't things that she sees in herself. But more importantly, it's not this isn't the conversation that she expected to have with her little brother. She figured that she, that he felt the same way about her as she does about him. So I think that that's also like a cool lesson for anybody who has siblings. Like siblings, it's not always easy, but it, it's a nice reminder. This these scenes that she has with her little brother, Apeface, aka Ben, that like no, your sibling might not hate you just because you sometimes get annoyed with them. Like they probably love you and idolize you in ways that you couldn't even imagine. Yes. I have an older brother too. And I remember we were at somebody's house and he asked for something to drink and I just copied him. You know, he wanted a soda. I wanted a soda. And then he did it on purpose. He switched his drink just to show, prove a point that I copied him. (laughs) (laughs) I, yeah, as an older sibling, I have done that. I have, I'm guilty of that for sure. (laughs) And then we, he landed on orange juice uh, which he knew I hated, like the the type that they had there. I forgot what was on the counter, and I struggled with what do I say because I was like, ah, oh, he, you know, that's when I realized he was tricking me, and I was like, oh, I, and then I think I did ask for apple, uh, orange juice, and then that's when he knew I too was copying him for sure. Like it was by far like the best, uh, like older sibling to younger sibling, like I got you moment. <laughs> yeah, no, that's very cool of him. My sister, I have, I have younger sisters and, um, the next one after me is six years younger than I am. And she, especially when she was a toddler, like she wanted to do everything that I did, which really makes sense given the age difference. Like I was eight and she was two and I'm sure I seemed like fascinating to her and she wanted to do everything that I did. And I think when you're growing up, you're really trying to like figure out who you are. And sometimes that means separating yourself from your family and from other people. And so it's really hard to figure out how to manage that. And I did not have like an Annabelle attitude. Like I I think Annabelle does have this sort of like cutting sense of humor and she really like doesn't care about hurting other people's feelings. And I don't, I don't say that from a bad place. I think that's like what we're meant to believe about her character in this book. Like she really just doesn't care. Um, and I really did care. So I was a little bit more gentle with my sister's feelings, but I definitely relate to that also. (laughs) Something that also struck me early in the book when we're getting to know Annabelle and coming to understand the dynamic between Annabelle and her mom is this like sneaky emphasis on external appearances that seems to exist in her family 
and her immense insecurity about that. There's a paragraph that I pulled out that I wanted to share where she's talking about how her mom is really beautiful. And she says, Lately, I've been getting so fed up with my face and fed up with people saying how much I look like my mother. My mother is always saying her father and I think Annabelle looks like her very own self. You know why I think she says that? Because it's insulting to her to say I look like her. I guess I can't blame her. If I were mom and had a daughter who looked like me, I wouldn't admit it either. Besides, I don't look like her, that is. I wish I did. And I just felt like there was so much in that paragraph. And it it broke my heart because as an adult, I feel like I can sort of see that what Annabelle's parents are actually saying when they say that she looks like her own self is like, stop trying to like seek us out in the faces of our children. Like, And I, I've talked to people who have that response when you tell them that their children look like them, where they've been like, oh, you know, we're not really trying to figure out who they look like. Like, we think they look like themselves. But to Annabelle, that feels sort of like an insult because she just assumes that her mom wouldn't want to look like Annabelle. And that just broke my heart that the two could see that statement from such different perspectives. It's also clear that Annabelle just has some like really fundamental insecurities about the way she looks. Yes. And then you wonder how far that goes back when you read that, because if she feels so, she she states that, and it's so clear and so painful too, when you read it, um, that you see her wishing she looked more like her mom. It's, it's just, uh, it's heartbreaking. And it's also, you know, very deep. You wonder, like, when did this first come up when she was like a toddler or, you know, as she became, as she was going through middle school, did it, did it become clearer then? But yes, I, I actually have notes on the same spot too, because that, that really struck me. There were some other things previously that she had kind of talked about, about wanting blue eyes and, and things like that. But then later on, but that particular line really made me stop and, and note it. Yeah. And you also have to wonder, I mean, I lived in New York for eight years and I think everybody, even if they haven't lived in New York, like New Yorkers have this reputation for being very appearance focused, at least now. And especially like certain kinds of New York families. Also, I think there's just this like belief that they are all beautiful and they like spend all this money to take care of themselves and like look young. And so I couldn't help but wonder like, is this family like a 1972 version of like the families on Gossip Girl? Like, I don't think they have that kind of money, but just in terms of like the priorities and what's valued for them, because if that were the case, like you can see how that would really upset Annabelle. And also, I just think it's an interesting contrast with the rest of their relationship. Like up until this point, We've been led to believe that it's just like all contentious all the time. They're constantly fighting. But when I read that paragraph, I realized that there's this glimmer of like, yeah, but like mom's really beautiful. And like maybe there's this small part of me that kind of wants to be like her. And I think that's very reflective of a lot of mother-daughter relationships too. Yes. And then at the beginning, they they talk about age. And I remember her mom uh, was 35, which probably, which made her 22 when she had her. Yeah. I wonder also, you know, what part of that is just her being 35 and and I don't know how that compares to her seeing other uh, moms of her um, friends, you know, whether they're they had their children younger or a little bit later. But I remember thinking that also is interesting that she was on the younger side when she had her. Yeah, these are young parents that we're talking about here. And I, I think to sort of wrap up that piece of the conversation, it's it's important to note in jumping to the end of the book that yes, Annabelle's mom was indeed in Annabelle's body, even though we don't see her and we don't like experience the day with her. 
And the way that she, like, experienced the day was basically to, like, give Annabelle a makeover. She goes and she buys all these new clothes, and she seems to have gone, I don't know if she got a haircut, but Annabelle observes that her hair looks, like, better and cleaner. And then she goes and she gets her braces off, because I guess there was an appointment that Annabelle would have forgotten if it was actually Annabelle in Annabelle's body. And so she comes back, and 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 we're led to believe that she's, quote-unquote, a beautiful chick, which is not a phrase that I was happy to read, and I'm not happy to repeat it. But she looks so much different and so much prettier I guess that the people in her family and her neighbors like don't even necessarily recognize her right away which seems like so extreme to me and I guess it just upset me that again these are like Annabelle's mom is a pretty flat character because we don't actually see anything from her perspective and we don't know that much about her but I guess I just I hated the fact that like given this whole day to try to gain some empathy for Annabelle or like try to accomplish some things that would really help her or make her feel good about herself in a more meaningful way she was like no I'm just gonna like go make her look better and that made me feel like maybe Annabelle was right like maybe her mom was kind of ashamed of the way that her daughter looked and that sucked yeah there's a lot of focus on appearance through the whole thing and by bringing in the building's love interest Boris I'll call him Boris for now yeah (laughs) the way he even described her it was just it just broke my heart because he was trying to describe when she goes missing at the toward the end you know he says she's long stringy brown hair and a mouthful of braces real ugly kid and so mean so mean and even if they like you know let's just say that at the end she's happy with her parents or whatever it's just the whole message was just yeah it was just not a great thing to focus on as like this is the takeaway from the book yeah you know, I, yeah so then you might have him not think so lowly of you. Yeah, and and I think because we have seen these other adaptations now and we know that there is a way to tell this story where both parties grow a lot and it doesn't have to be so superficial. Like, I don't don't remember the particulars of the Lindsay Lohan adaptation very well, but, I mean, I, I remember that when she's in her daughter's body, the mom in that movie, like, does change her appearance just to, like, maybe be a little bit... I think she's sort of, like, um like an emo rocker in that movie like I remember these scenes where she's really into like playing her guitar and she's wearing she's wear, wears all black and I, I think her mom like changes her clothes a little bit just so that she feels more comfortable spending time in her body but yeah. she does other things like she, there's some like inner growth and so it's hard when you know that there's a version of that story that exists to read this book and be like mm, there doesn't really seem to have been that much like care taken for the internal here. Right. I totally agree with you. Yeah. I think in the movie, again, I don't remember all of the movie, but at the beginning when she's trying to get ready for school, it's like a completely different look for her. You Mm -hmm. know, she, and then she pulls back her hair uh, and says like, she just wants to see her face, you know, (laughs) like that where it's such a mom, nice, sweet thing to say. Well, you know, she's saying it, but she just wants to see her face. And that was kind of, Oh yeah. Maybe she's a, you know, nice mom. She is a nice mom. Everybody's just trying their best. I, I feel like in the movie, it seems like everybody's trying their best. And in the book, I didn't necessarily no. feel that way <laughs> as much. Speaking of yep. not trying their best, um, oh. let's talk about the dad for a hot minute. I don't want to spend a lot of time on him because I, I really didn't like him. 
But let's talk about why we didn't like him. I'm I'm assuming you didn't, but tell me what your thoughts on him were. Yeah, everything that came out of his mouth was just mildly offensive or, you know, things that she's, you know, whether it's referring to her cooking for her, you know, he brings home clients, you know, at the last minute and it's like, oh, but you're a good cook. You can do this. And it's just like, um, but more importantly was when he just said weird phrases like be a good girl and and you can do X, Y, or Z, um, like clean his shirts and, and, and things like that, that just... It made me uncomfortable because I forgot that this is written um, so many years ago, 50 years ago. And I had to remember it was a different time then. Yeah, there's this whole scene where Annabelle in her mom's body. This book is like so confusing to talk about. And I'm sorry if we're confusing everyone. I'm trying to be very clear about like who's in whose body and who's doing what. But I guess it shouldn't be that confusing because we really have no idea what her mom is doing throughout the day. So Annabelle in her mom's body realizes that she needs to go buy some alcohol by the way that scene I was like that scene were written today it would be like oh my gosh I'm so nervous to go to the liquor store like this is such a big deal they didn't pay any attention to that scene in this book they're like oh she's like oh I just casually went to buy some gin like it was not a thing and it so would be a thing I think for kids today but she she doesn't know where her mom keeps the money like she needs to get money to go buy gin and so she asks her dad about the money and and he's like I gave you fifty dollars yesterday where did it all go? And maybe I was reading into it, but it just felt like very condescending to me. Um, I mean, maybe he was wondering like what she spent the money on, but the whole dynamic of him clearly being in full control of the family's resources and like literally being like the purse strings of the house. Like she didn't get any money unless he said it was okay. And then he was like insulting her intellect. He was like sort of implying that she's just always been bad at math and she could never be good at math. And stuff like that really upsets me because I think I've read a lot about the consequences of this, this weird stereotype that has existed for so long about like girls thinking that they're bad at math. And I thought that I was bad at math. And Mm -hmm. I don't know that I was, like, great at math, but I wasn't bad at math. Like, once I got some confidence, I was pretty good at math. And there was, like, a whole page in this book where she's, like, fighting with her dad slash husband about, like, her ability to do math. And it just – it made me upset because it made me think about, like, how many times – growing up was I presented with this kind of a conversation where a female character was like laughed at for trying to work with numbers or laughed at for trying to manage money and then you just kind of learn to laugh it off yourself so that really bothered me and maybe I'm projecting but I wasn't into that no yeah I I remember thinking when I read that part that he was really grilling her on $50 and you know she had to run down all the things she had purchased to prove to him that she had spent it wisely as if he's you know they're I don't know I, it just made me uncomfortable too to go through it. and then after that he just launches into going off on his daughter too after yeah. right in the same conversation by calling her careless and sloppy and then and then criticizing her parental um, abilities by saying she's going to the mom real mom is going too easy on Annabelle um, and I'm like you were barely in this book yeah <laughs> It. And then you, when you do come home, you bring home clients uh, unannounced. So right. uh, I don't think you should be criticizing like this. Yeah, and I, I think that what I realized reading this as an adult that I probably didn't when I was a kid is that, like, yes, it's so obvious that some of what Annabelle is coming to appreciate about her mom's life is in, like, 
the errands and the work that she has to put in, like these very tangible efforts that are required to manage a family. But I, I was really sensitive to these like smaller, like emotional tasks that her mom was doing on the family's behalf, like this conversation that they have about Annabelle going to camp. And my sense was that Annabelle's mom had actually been advocating for her to go the whole time, even though it was clearly a touchy subject with the dad because of the expense. It's just like a reminder that like, who knows what kinds of hard conversations the adults in your life are having on your behalf that they would never tell you about. And like the tension that it's creating in their own relationships, that's just as difficult, if not more difficult than like having to do the cooking every day. Even the fact that she has this very brief conversation with her grandmother and she finds out that her grandmother calls her mom at the same time every single day. And that's something that like as a kid, you don't appreciate that that's like an emotional responsibility to like be a support system, not only to your immediate family, but to also be there to pick up the phone when like other people who need you call you every day. And I would imagine that like kid readers wouldn't necessarily be able to like appreciate that, which is isn't like a neg on them. It's just like a thing that I don't think you get until you get older. But as an adult, I sort of picked up on a lot of those smaller moments, like the conversations that Annabelle's mom was having to advocate for her, like the emotional responsibilities that she was taking on to sort of like make life easier for the rest of the family. So I I definitely appreciated that a lot more. And I wonder, I wonder how much of that Mary Rogers like snuck in there as a nod to parents or if it was just accidental. Yeah, I think she did a really good job at showing the emotional, you know, the heaviness that comes through, comes with just being a parent. She also, when you read the whole book, I never got the impression that the mom talked a lot of smack about her own daughter to other people. Like it was always these people complaining about her daughter, but not saying, as you know, as I, as you say, you know, something yeah. like that, where you, you feel like she's n- never really gone after her own daughter, like in conversation. So that made me really, throughout the book, realize that she was not going to do that and not that type of parent. And then there's other things you do see about her life that, uh, you know, now as a, as a parent, I see myself where he, you know, the youngest son has to come home at noon and she has to be at the bus stop. So plus the morning, get the, everybody out the door. She, she has a very busy day. Yeah. <laughs> of that. So I, I, you know, she has the, and then he's expecting lunch and then it's usually the, I, he named some things. I forgot what the food he mentions, but it, it's kind of elaborate. So <laughs> yeah, he has like expectations. It's not just like a sandwich and some goldfish. Like he wants yeah. a very, he wants a menu. Right. And it's like a nice, warm cooked meal. And it's her day is just actually pretty full. And, you know, with the parent teacher conference and things like it's really filled up, especially if she has to go grab groceries in this case, which is liquor. Yes. <laughs> on her to-do list. And, and then just take care of the household before, you know, everybody gets back home. So it's been it was eye-opening to see somebody have to, you, you see almost all the whole day unfold and get to see all the little things that go into her day and realize she's just, she doesn't have time to even sit down and relax. Yeah. Well, and I think a lot of people now that everybody basically other than essential workers and a few others are working from home, you realize that like, and I've, I've been working from home exclusively for almost four years. And I remember when I started working from home, it was like, okay, I'm going to be, I'm working full time still, even though I'm working from home. But when you are home, you realize all of the things that need to get done in order to like keep your home looking and feeling a certain way. And for some reason, when you're 
in an office or something nine to five, like those things, I guess, just like don't get done or you don't realize that they have to happen. But it's, I think that as more people are spending more of their time working from home, you realize like it's a full-time job to like also run your house. And I don't have, I don't have children and I still have like a ton of work to do. So like, I do not know how you and other parents manage families and households and jobs. Like I'm so impressed by all of it, but I think this book does offer a little snapshot into that. Yes. Especially the, the laundry and then having to call, oh. <laughs> call somebody to fix it is, I was like, that sounded like my day yesterday. Um, so, yeah. It, it, actually that whole interaction was a little harsh too, where she's trying to talk to this guy to fix it. And then he's asking her to repeat after me. Is it top cider? Yeah. Yeah. They couldn't, he, he didn't, he basically didn't believe that she knew like what kind of washing machine yes, she had. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she said he says say top loader and it was actually front loader and it it was just really weird how he said that to her and I don't he would not say that same use that same attitude and tone to a man. No. And generally I think we see that in a bunch of her interactions especially on the phone later in the book when she's I think it's when she's calling the police officers to there's a whole it's a whole like farcical scene that I don't even think we'll we'll have time to get into and it's really not even that important but she does have this she has she calls the police and like the police don't believe her who's an adult woman but then she puts Boris on the phone who's a who's a 14 year old boy and they're like okay great like we totally buy he tells he tells them the exact same thing, and they believe him, but they don't believe her. And so yeah. I picked up on that kind of pattern as well. And I, yes, I I remember that from the washing machine repairman as well. Yeah, we we have to talk about the housekeeper as much as I <laughs> don't want to because it's pretty dark, but it's uh it's there, and so we're going to talk about it. The housekeeper's name is Mrs. Schmaus, which I thought was a hilarious character name, and she shows up. And basically, it's just, like, terrible from the minute she walks in the door. I'm not going to repeat what she said, but she uses a lot of racist slurs to describe several different groups of people. She then talks about how when Annabelle, as Annabelle's mom, defends them and is basically like, we don't use those kinds of words. She says, all you liberals make me sick. She says, you liberal folks are the ones turn out the troublemakers in this country. And it's just, like... (laughs) She's a very specific kind of character. And I just thought it was interesting that she was included in, in this book. I mean, the book generally feels like it's written for, like, I think even an 8, 9, or 10-year-old could enjoy it if, if it was read to them. But then you get these random moments where I'm like, whoa. Like, this feels like we suddenly took a turn into something, like, much heavier and much darker. I mean, I appreciated that Annabelle spoke up, and is she clearly has these very progressive beliefs they refer to her as a women's liber throughout the book which was obviously like a very old school term but I was like good for you Annabelle so I liked that the example here was to like speak out against that kind of language but I don't really understand why it had to be included in the first place it just seemed like very random with everything else I completely agree and what was interesting to me mostly about you know reading it this time was that I, I was reading the 2009 version. So I just assumed that when you take an older problematic book in some ways and have an opportunity to update it, you might take out some of these things or soften it or whatever you would do, uh, especially if it's 2009, I think is the, the version I'm reading. So I, I was surprised all of this was in here. There's a lot. There's yeah. 
you know, just pages of her saying all this, these terrible things. I even had to Google one phrase because I'd never heard it before. Yeah, she was pulling out like, like obscure <laughs> racial slurs. Like it was very weird. Yeah. So then when I read it, I was like, wow, I just didn't expect this, especially because if it's a term that's not even used now, like why, why wouldn't you update that when you have an opportunity in 2009? So that's, the thing that confused me. And then, I mean, again, I agree with you where it was nice to see that she spoke up and said, you know, and in reflection, she says that she was a liar and drunk and prejudiced. And those were all true. She was not all of those things. She was not very nice person. And I really, it made me actually, when I read this part, feel pretty sad that I know that that probably was important for the author to put in for a reason. You know, so I felt like she was making a point. It was just now I <laughs> I don't know if it was needed to keep in such a harsh way. I think that's very well said. So before we start to wind things down, I have to know what you think about the Boris slash Morris situation. So Boris is like the boy who lives down the hall or upstairs and Annabelle has always had a crush on him. And he's his he's like always congested because his it's like a psychosomatic thing where like he's like he thinks he's like allergic to his mom. So when he's at home, he's congested because his mom stresses him out. He shows up and there's a lot going on. Like he seems to have some sort of a crush on Mrs. Andrews, a.k.a. Annabelle's mom. He really doesn't like Annabelle because they had this like sort of weird falling out a few years ago when they were playing because she like whacked him in the head with a shovel. So now he hates her and he is very critical of her appearance. As you said earlier, there's just like a lot going on. He's there like cooking for the dad's work associates. What was your overall impression of the Boris thing and the way that it kind of like comes to a conclusion? Okay. I thought at the beginning he was put in kind of as a, not as deep of a, like, I didn't understand his purpose in terms of, um, was he comic relief? Was he just like, just to have a side character? I didn't, I didn't really, uh, you know, was it just to show that she has this, uh, their interactions are funny because she's a grown woman's body, but it's actually Annabelle in it. And then she's trying to flirt with him as a 14 year old. That made me a little toward the end when they kind of profess their love to each other. That was a little uncomfortable. For what um, it's worth, I did read some takes that is basically was like Boris seems to have existed for comic relief because, and I think this person was very critical in their review. Again, I'll post all these in the show notes, but this person was like, I think the whole book was meant to be funny and like none of it was funny except for Boris. Yes. And it really wasn't until the very, very end when you realize things that are hilarious about Boris is because of the allergies, he, he can't pronounce bees or everything sounds like bees. Right. <laughs> So his name's and, actually Morris. You're right. His name's actually Morris. And he's supposed to be preparing meatloaf for the clients because she roped him into that. And it's actually beetloaf and it's made out of beets. Which was actually uh, probably very trendy now. Like, you know that some very fancy chef in New York City is making, like, liquid nitrogen beetloaf. <laughs> and it's tiny. It's, like, the size of a quarter. And it's, like, the fanciest thing you can get. I mean, like, not when we're in a pandemic. But you know that that has been trendy at some point. Yes. So, yeah, I <laughs> so all of those things kind of tumble out at the end. And it was just a very funny all the things that are revealed about Boris are hilarious. So, it you know, kind of lifts the book up at the very end again, because there were some darker moments. But yeah, again, like because of their weird interactions as a an adult body <laughs> mother yeah. uh, of 
Annabelle to them flirting and then professing love and then him being at the end into the real Annabelle who has a makeover because she switches back to that body. It really was, I don't know how I feel about it, to be honest. Yeah, it was a lot. I will say this book was like a a lot in certain moments. Like nothing happened for a little while. Like she was just like hanging out in the apartment and then all of a sudden there are all of these things going on at once and some of them didn't even seem important. It was a little overwhelming at times. Yeah, for sure. And then, yeah, at the end, again, all of it to to land, most of it did in a humorous way. So I think that, again, if this whole book was, for the most part, you know, if you start from the beginning, you get to know her voice, and she's very funny and sarcastic and energetic. And then at the end, it, it kind of ends on a very humorous note. I think they were trying to go for humorous, as you said, the whole time. And he really did help with the comic relief. And I don't think there was anybody else in the book that was as like used for that sort of purpose. Yeah. Because all the other characters are kind of awful. Yeah. I think a lot of it just doesn't necessarily translate, which is a shame, but I agree that Boris is, he definitely comes out like as the constant source of humor in the book. So I know you didn't read this when you were younger, so we can't, I can't ask you to compare this reading experience to when you were a kid, but I guess I'll ask you because you do have a daughter after reading this book, after talking about it with me, is this a book that you would recommend to her? Is this a book that you generally enjoy? Do you find that it's on balance more positive than problematic or vice versa? You know, I was planning to buddy read this with her. I had actually gotten two copies so that we could read this at the same time. But then as I read it and then started getting into, I guess it was the section where she interacts with her husband mm. and then not the kindest. And then just kept going downhill after that in terms of her interactions with him. And then she does the, she runs into the housekeeper and has a lot of problems. And then at the bus stop, we didn't mention that, but there's also kind of racial yeah. slurs run around. And then at the end with the teachers, that was kind of confusing. I, I feel like she wouldn't enjoy this book because she would be upset by certain sections mm. enough to not appreciate the humor as much. Well, I I think that's a very fair assessment. I won't say that this book disappointed me because I really didn't go into it with any expectations since I didn't remember it. And my real association with the story is the movie, but I was like very meh about it. Like there was enough positive in it that I had fun reading it. And at the same time, there was enough problematic in it that I sort of like reacted to those things negatively. So I, I feel very like ambivalent about the whole thing but it was really fun talking to you about it so I appreciate the fact that you buddy read it with me even if you didn't buddy read it with your daughter I I will say that I this is the first book that I read from a long time ago and reread or you know meaning read a book from a long time ago in current day Mm -hmm. versus a newer book with my daughter and, and kind of reading some of those books that are middle grade level And reading this and the type of voice she has here made me think, oh, maybe one day I could write a middle grade. Not because I would write this exact same thing, but she is very voicey in her in in the her storytelling. And I didn't expect that. I guess I I don't know what I was expecting for the movie, but after watching the movie, but I feel like that was something that really stayed consistent through the whole thing. You really get to know kind of her inner thoughts and her she is has a biting sense of humor, and that came through. So in that sense, I'm really glad I read it because I was like, man, maybe one day I'll write a middle grade, and it won't be as offensive, and it won't be as... <laughs> 
and it won't have so many dark moments. But I, I think that made me realize that this is something that isn't that is within my reach, just because it's something that I hadn't seen lately in some of the things that my daughter reads. Yeah, I agree. I, and, and even within the world of middle grade, I do think that that Annabelle has like an extra special distinct voice. So I think that's a really good point. And I would love to hear about your middle grade if and when you decide to write it. So please keep me in the loop. <laughs> you know, I hadn't really thought of it until I read this. So, you know, after I finished some other projects and maybe, maybe it's something I'd try out because I, again, it hadn't even occurred to me that this was something that could work with the way I, I do storytelling. So who knows? Cool. Well, I love to hear that maybe it offered a little inspiration for you. What have you been reading other than Freaky Friday and enjoying that you would recommend to our listeners? So this year, I've somebody asked me, you know, how many books have you read? And I think of myself as, well, I am a slow reader, but I also have been so busy with just getting some manuscripts written and, and drafted that I hadn't really spent much time reading. But then when I thought through all the books that I'd read, I'd actually read a lot. So it's kind of a mix. It's all over the place. I've read a lot of thriller, suspense type stuff. Okay. So Follow Me by Kathleen Barber. Mm-hmm. Uh, Never Have I Ever by Jocelyn Jackson has been great. And then as far as contemporary fiction that is more uh, romance and rom-com leaning, Recipe for Persuasion, Girl Gone Viral, and She's Faking It were some that I've read this year and really enjoyed. And then Vanessa Yu's Magical Paris Tea Shop. I um, got to read an arc of that, and now that's going to be released soon. I really enjoyed all of those. Thanks for all those good recommendations. I will include links to all of them in the show notes for this episode. Also, a link to Freaky Friday and a link to your books, Suzanne, The Perfect Escape, Loathe at First Sight. I'm so excited to get these books into the hands of our listeners. And I so appreciate you spending this time talking about Freaky Friday on this Friday with me. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks so much. And it was such a really great experience. I really enjoyed speaking about this book with you. I'm so glad. Yeah, it was great. Have a good one. Bye. Bye-bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.